Welcome back to the Aryan Jew show for the fourth installment of the mind of Alexander Bard. By now you must understand how infested by continental philosophy it is. It does, however, generate interesting results. But before we continue on that journey, I promised you last episode that I would return with a more extensive analysis of the election. An election everyone claims to have won, but feels like they've lost. I was one of those that thought that the Sweden Democrats would win a decisive victory. I have publicly for almost a year predicted that they would get 26%, which wasn't even one of the highest estimates, as some estimated they would get as much as 30%. In the end, they got almost... 17.9%, which means they are the actual winners of the election, but the psychological blow of being so far from the estimates make them feel like they've lost. I am happy. I didn't like the idea of the Sweden Democrats, a fairly tame nationalist, socially conservative party by European standards, and any standards really, would be the biggest party, because that would just mean that the Swedes had decided on a new consensus. As per usual, in complete silence, without any open or rational discussion. And if that had happened, it would be another hundred years till the next spectacular failure and the chance of getting any new ideas in. This is much better. Now the left can't form a government, and the right probably can't form a government. Neither could probably get a budget through if they did, which means that whichever government is formed would fall. The Sweden Democrats being kingmakers. The Social Democrats, every Swede subconscious daddy issue, only got 29%, which for them is an historic low. They are still the largest party, but unable to form a new government. The fact that Stefan Löfven, our social democratic prime minister, has said that he will not step down willingly is a warning sign that seems to escape most of my compatriots. In principle, first dibs on forming a government should go to the biggest party, but only if you have a realistic chance of forming one. And all the opposition parties, including the Sweden Democrats, have said they will vote Stefan Löfven out when Parliament opens if he doesn't go willingly. Even if the Social Democrats had a decent chance of forming a government, The gallant thing to do would be to resign and wait for the Speaker of the House to request that you form a government. Stefan Löfven's refusal to step down is not only a political faux pas or the breaking of an unwritten rule. It is a clear sign that he doesn't even bother to pretend that we're living in a democracy anymore. Which at least is more honest than usual, since it is true. Sweden is not really a democracy. It is a socialist democracy, which means that it is only democratic to the extent that the people, by voting, express what our leaders want us to want. So if the Social Democrats fared worse than ever, they are still the biggest party in Parliament. But while all of the Swedish media has been transfixed by the political uncertainty in a country that never has any political uncertainty whatsoever, on the state level, a silent revolution has taken place in the municipalities. In Sweden, we call it the communal level. The Social Democrats have lost in 250 out of 290 municipalities. And it is not only my campaign to crush socialism that did it, even though I am going to claim all the credit. It is not even the Sweden Democrats. They took a lot of municipalities in the south. But in Gothenburg on the west coast, which has formerly been a flagship for the social democracy, the social democrats imploded and a completely new party called Demokraterna, the Democrats, became the second biggest party. In Norrland, which is what we call the north of Sweden, the social democrats were ousted on the municipal level by a new party simply called Sjukvårdspartiet, the healthcare party. But the most beautiful thing of all has been to see the establishment in state television and, for that matter, state television itself in complete disarray. This is a country that has never had a revolution, a country where everything has been clean and everything runs on time, so they are not used to handling even a little gravel in the machinery. They are now behaving like incoherent lunatics. It is both a relief and a bit socially awkward. The mask of the establishment in-group has fallen at last. The even worse news is that the Social Democrats lost a lot of votes to the Communists, who got almost 8%. 
A problem not only because it makes me deeply uncomfortable on a personal level that I live in a country where 8% of the population think it's right to confiscate my Spider-Man comics and used Catholic priest underwear collection, but mostly because in effect that means they want to abolish democracy. Another way to say redistribution of wealth is theft. And the result of such policies can be seen played out before our eyes as we speak in countries like Venezuela or North Korea or historically in the Soviet Union, China and the Anabaptists of Münster. The Swedish leftist party was for the Soviet pact with the Nazis. They were for Stalin's invasion of Poland together with Hitler. They sent a telegram congratulating Hitler after the conquest of France and has since then supported every extreme leftist and or Islamic terror organization and or regime in the world. Therefore, there is an outspoken rule in Swedish politics that they, the leftists, can't be let into government, something the Social Democrats actually used to be quite serious about. Unfortunately, that was a long time ago. They now count and depend on communist support for every budget, and every budget is ever more influenced by these Hamas-hugging fascist-fetishists. When I started the project titled Crush Socialism, one of the big reasons was that one of the problems I saw with our current situation was that the left, after the Second World War, didn't put a leash on their crazy people. While the right had to, the guilt of their maniacs was clear and had been from beginning to end. At least in Sweden, where the number of extreme Nazis are just a few hundred from a few thousand back in the 90s when I grew up. But the socialists and communists had started on the same side as the Nazis, but then switched sides when the Nazis betrayed their pact. So by the end of the war, they end up on the winning side with the good guys, even though they just ousted Hitler to replace one oppression with another. They didn't put a leash on their maniacs. Instead, they put them to work as professors in academia, as producers in radio, TV and film, and other positions of power. Partly because leftists don't believe in personal responsibility, collectivists as they are, and therefore should not be entrusted with important tasks, and partly because the left believes that idiots get less dumb with some encouragement, rewards and hugs, rather than with reprimands and discipline. That the left did not put a leash on their crisis is proven by our own state television, because when Jonas Sjöstedt, leader of the leftist party, says that he wants to nationalize all assets, they don't give him a harder question than, but what happens to H&M if you do? The implicit leftist bias of our state television was as clear then and there as when they, after the last of the party leader debates, denounced a statement by the leader of the Sweden Democrats where he made a difference between immigrants and Swedes in the labor market as racist. The thing is, they didn't need to. He was gainsayed before he even got to finish his argument by first the center party's Annie Lööf and then everybody else in the debate. And it's not like state television denounce Jonas Sjöstedt, the leftist party leader, when he wants to abolish democracy. So when program director Jan Helin of the Swedish state television, formerly editor-in-chief of the union-controlled tabloid Aftonbladet, goes out in the evening news, every evening news, on the state's own channels, every state-owned channel, and on the debate show Opinion Live, that too on state television, and declares that state television were not partial when they denounced Jimmy Åkesson's statement, but simply upheld, and I quote, the democracy paragraph in their license to broadcast, then there is no real democracy, is there? Because there is nothing in that paragraph that says they have to denounce specific statements made in debates where opponents can challenge each other's arguments. That paragraph simply states that the programming of public service, which is two TV channels, one educational TV channel, and at least four major radio stations, as a whole, should promote the principle of equality for all. Single statements or single shows don't have to, as long as the majority of the programming do. When Jan Helin then explains that there's nothing wrong with the policy and that they, quote, just have to develop new methods of, quote, applying the ideology into the questions themselves, it is nothing but code for more advanced methods of manipulation and deception. All questions from now on will be even more biased. How they will make them even more biased than they are today, I do not know and dare not imagine, but I have no doubt that they will succeed. This is something they're quite apt at.
You see, I worked there. They are quite good at this. After all, they have been doing this for a long time, and at least since Olof Palme became Minister of Communications in 1965. Around 80% of the journalists employed there vote left or the environmental party, a party that puts the mental in environment. And now the left is calling everybody racist, even the center party and the liberal party who are both pro-immigration, gender feminism, intersectionality, and refuse to even hold talks with the Sweden Democrats, while at the same time accusing them of wanting to work with the Sweden Democrats who might have been a neo-Nazi organization rather recently, but whose resume looks like a kindergartner's compared to the hundred years of atrocious behavior by our leftist party. It's more than a little ironic. Nationalists of old might have wanted to nationalize all assets, but the Sweden Democrats of today don't, at least not in any public document. At the same time, the Social Democrats are dependent on a party that still want to nationalize all assets. In comparing outcomes, the difference between communism and old-school Germanic socialist nationalism is none. They are exactly the same. The breakdown of the right has been less entertaining in that it has been so predictable. They started screaming about election fraud the minute the counting started, which is bad form. It undermines the trust in our sham democracy. And since we don't have a real democracy, we can't dispense with the trust. The first thing I tweeted out the morning after the election, therefore, was... Quote, the people have spoken, the results are clear. Sweden wants me to spend another term crushing socialism. End quote. Election fraud actually happens in every election, but usually nobody cares and almost no one is convicted. The most reliable sources I got revealed that even if well-intended, our voting system is not secure from election fraud, and I suspect that everybody in the mainstream media now screaming that anybody who even reports an incident of election fraud is a conspiracy nut, racist, Nazi, Putin lover, or whatever, will soon have to revert to the classic Swedish phrase, I quote, we have been naive. You see, that is what our ruling classes have said after every social engineering plan that has gone to hell. Stefan Löfven said it after the migration crisis that led to the closing of the border in 2015. They said it after the terror attack on Drottninggatan in central Stockholm, which left five people dead in 2017, and they've said it about religious extremism in Gothenburg, nowadays labeled the capital of Salafi jihadism in Europe, but also for relatively mundane stuff. The Social Democratic Minister of Social Issues, Annika Strandhäll, said it after the Swedish state pension agency fucked up the pension system so bad a lot of people got tricked out of their retirement money. It might not be as deadly as a terror attack, but it still destroys a person's life. Naivete literally means, and I quote, lacking worldly experience and understanding, end quote which makes me wonder how these people have risen to positions of such power, lacking both worldly experience and understanding, and how a party that claims to have built Sweden and governed it for more than a hundred years could do that without worldly experience and understanding, and how we can claim to be a moral superpower that can save the world if we lack worldly experience and understanding. That we will soon heard it said by our leaders in politics, culture and the media about our voting system is something I would bet money on. Apart from being so open as to invite peer pressure and voting with the in-group, nobody controls the people actually counting the votes. They can all be the same family, the same party, activists of any kind or just somebody who doesn't care. Then the district leader is supposed to report in the result to the election agency before physically transporting the votes to the agency itself, and he can make up any number he wants. It is also hard to control, because you see, when he has reported the results, which he himself could have made up, he, by himself, transports the votes in bags to the election agency, any way he wants. He could go by taxi or subway or kick scooter if he so pleases. What happens on the way is impossible to control. So you see how the term naive might soon come into play. 
I'm not saying it does happen. I'm just saying that maybe faith in the system is a bit too high. One might call it naivete, but mostly because criminal stupidity has a bad ring to it. I believe most people who volunteer to do this do it because they love democracy and believe in democracy, maybe even so much that they would resort to cheating if they thought that the party you discriminated against was going to abolish democracy if they won. If you really believe that you are good and they are racist scum, then wouldn't you be justified? The most obvious warning signals I got tipped about concerned districts who came in without or with a very light bag for smaller parties, but instead a huge bag of disqualified votes. And the other concerned party bags that seemed to contain stacks of votes that had just been put in there without being counted, that is, added to the bag. But those are a few instances, and I don't know if it really matters more than on the outermost margin. The discussion shouldn't be about election fraud as much as securing up the system. Maybe with people from opposing parties controlling each other's counting and maybe a safer way of reporting and doing the first round of counts? The right has also screamed like nervous Nellies about clientism, which they call clan voting. As example, they hold up a representative of the environmental party, Ali Khalil, who offered the moderate party in the municipality 3,000 votes if they granted them building permits for a new mosque. This is nothing strange. It's called clientism, and the entire Swedish system is built upon it. That's what a corporative state is, a hyper-advanced clan system. That's also why it suits immigrants from clan cultures so well. In that sense, they integrate instantly. Ali didn't offer the moderate party more than he has probably offered the social democrats before, but feeling incorrectly where the wind was blowing, he just thought he'd better take the deal to the moderates instead, being potentially the new strongest clan. Before 1950, Sweden was ethnically and culturally one of the most homogenous countries in the world, and since everybody looked the same and pretty much thought the same, it wasn't noticeable. But when you introduce pluralism, the system came into focus. In other words, the system had been invisible since everybody was white, like the air you breathe or water to a fish, but let a drop of ink into the water and the medium becomes clearly visible. And yes, the joke is intentional, but not ill-intentioned. Sure, socially disadvantaged areas, or immigrant ghettos as they are called in cultures that are less PC, vote up to 80% social democrat and up to 10 or more for the communists. They also voted in a lot of Islamists, so they are infested by entryism. But the Christian Democrats got almost 40% on some islands in the archipelago of Gothenburg, the conservative moderates got 50% in Nusholm, the Long Island of Sweden. And just like in the case of Ali Khalil, who wanted to purchase building permits for a mosque with 3,000 votes, or the Islamists who got in in Malmö or Gothenburg, it is not a conspiracy. It can be explained by simple self-interest. Because the biggest election fraud in Sweden is legal, institutionalized, and in fact, the system itself. What the editor-in-chief of oppositional media site Ledarsidorna, Johan Westerholm, calls the welfare industrial complex. The reason that the social democrats get 29% of the votes is that 29% of the people, in reality probably more if you count in the leftists and the environmental party, are so dependent on the welfare state in the form of salary or subsidies or both, that they have to vote to preserve it, for the sake of their own survival. They can't afford not to. And the other parts of Sweden, like Jusholm, the Long Island of Sweden, won't be able to afford it forever either. The system is rigged to favor the Social Democrats, which isn't very strange considering they actually built the system. So if we Swedes want real democracy of the Western, more liberal kind, we have to change the system. Unfortunately, we don't have any political alternative that seems to want the same thing. They are just fighting for power, to keep it, not disperse it. Adding insult to injury, a Swedish higher court just ruled that if you're a Palestinian refugee in Sweden, about to be deported back to Palestine, all you have to do to avoid deportation is to attack Jews. I know it sounds weird, but explaining the facts will just make it sound weirder. But I'll try. On the 9th of December 2017, a bunch of men firebombed the Jewish community center in Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden, that night hosting a party for kids aged 14 to 18 years of age. 
Thanks to video footage of the incident, the state got to prosecute three of these men out of at least ten. One of the three convicted men, a Palestinian refugee about to be deported back to Palestine, had his deportation revoked since, quote, Israel couldn't guarantee his safety. Which is super weird because according to Swedish law, Israel is not responsible for people in Palestine. That is the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority or Hamas. Because Sweden has, as one of few Western countries, recognized Palestine as a legitimate state. It was in fact the absolute first thing the Social Democratic government of Stefan Levin did four years ago when they won the election. The absolutely first thing they did was to recognize Palestine. And now they can't send back a criminal asylum seeker convicted of hate crimes against Jews because his Jew hatred might make him a target for Israel. The only way to make Israel responsible for this man's safety is if you truly believe that Jews control the world and are responsible for all its ills. Now this verdict will set precedent so that all Palestinians who got their request for asylum or residency denied just have to attack a Jew, get convicted, and will then get permanent residency. Hating Jews is now a legitimate reason to get asylum in Sweden. If you wonder how it got this way, I should inform you that the Swedish judicial system was Nazi before the Nazis even existed, and the only countries our judicial system ever really influenced were Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Franco Spain, and Axis power Japan, who have since all discarded the principles underpinning the Swedish judicial system. So to summarize, we live in a country with a cooperative system with socialist leanings based on ethnic homogeneity, faced with pluralism in the system, a socialist prime minister who refused to step down voluntarily, and an official sanctioned bounty on Jews. This is the culture that brought forth Alexander Bard and myself. I would advise you to bear that in mind as you enter his mind for the fourth time. Enjoy. And so we're back, and we ended on a note where we started talking about, well, we started the last episode about talking about postmodernism, and we ended up in value relativism. And uh, then I pointed out that Alexander, who is kind of a pragmatist, isn't it true that pragmatists often become relativists? Well, I think that Nietzsche in Europe and the American pragmatists in America are falsely blamed for being the origin of postmodernism. So and how they, so? They, because I don't, I don't agree with you on this, so, no. so please explain. They're relativist in a certain sense, but they're relativist based on an absolute. So there is an absolute at the end of it. And this is also why you have to read Hegel before you read them, because it's actually through reading Hegel that Alfred North Whitehead in the 20th century completes the school of American pragmatism. And if you read Nietzsche without Hegel, you end up with Nietzsche being a value relativist. But if you see Nietzsche through Hegel, who we obviously read before, Hegel was a huge star before, before Nietzsche existed. And, and Hegel is really the first philosopher who looks into the shadow of humanity after Kant. He stops the idolization of human beings and sees reality instead for what it is. So in pragmatism, whether it's the American version or Nietzsche's version, the absolute is time and not space. Everything happens along the timeline, and it absolutely happens when it happens. That's called an actuality. So the world is full of potentialities, most of which never happen. The sperm that hit the egg when you started to exist is a good example. There were you know, millions of sperms, only one hit the egg, and you became that person. And the combination of the sperm and the egg became you, and that's the actuality. So a potentiality can exist out there. But it's only when it hits the timeline it can be an actuality and then something that really did occur. So something that does happen is an actuality. Now actualities, there are many actualities in the universe, but they're incredibly rare compared to the potentialities. And the pragmatist is interested in the actuality. So he really is interested in something that does happen. And he's interested in the reality of that which happens. And that is then what we then have to identify and find us the guidance forward. This is where Nietzsche's concept of the Amur Fati comes in. Nietzsche's concept means that Amur Fati is that you should love absolutely everything that has happened until now, including yourself, the way you are right now. You have to love it. You have to accept it and you have to love it. And you start from there, and because of that, you cannot allow for bitterness, and you cannot allow yourself to become a victim. You can only look forward to empowerment, and the realization of will to power, as Nietzsche says. So 
The question is then, what would be the foundation for this? Is there a foundation? No, because in value relativism, there is no foundation. They're just endless amounts of statements which we are not allowed to value according to the statement themselves, but only value according to who says it. That means that there has to be power hierarchy in society, and whoever has the power has a higher value what they say than somebody who doesn't have the power. So it all becomes a big fight over who's allowed to utter anything, which is ridiculous. You cannot build a society on that at all. You can apply that in a daycare center to foster children to start listening to each other because what they say is not important. So it works in a daycare center. So it works among women who raise children. But if you take that ideology and put it in society as a whole, then you get value relativism. And that's the, you know, that's the, the beginning of the fall for any kind of civilization. But the difference here with the pragmatists is that they're obsessed with one thing that doesn't change at all, that it's change itself. There is a foundation. Contingency is the only thing that's necessary. So change. Change itself is the only thing that doesn't change. Change happens all the time. Society is in constant flux. But that is action absolute according to Hegel. This is why I say you have to read Hegel first before you read the pragmatist and before you read Nietzsche. And then you can slaughter the postmodernist and the relativism. Because I don't think Richard Rorty at all is the heir of the, of the great tradition of American pragmatism. I think American pragmatism goes wrong with Rorty and his populism and his opportunism and his attempt to unify American thinking with postmodernism in Europe. They're all wrong. And I don't see Nietzsche as a value relativist at all. He's a cultural relativist in that relativism is the beginning of questioning a certain paradigm. So it becomes like you need several voices, several perspectives to really get at the truth. You can see it in your everyday reality. For example, when you want to find out what's fake news and real news in the morning, the best thing you can do is to read five different newspapers. And if you hear five different voices from five different ideological perspectives, you're probably closer to the truth than any other way you could get to the truth. Hear different voices. This is what Nietzsche means, with a variety of voices, with that sort of relativism. But he does believe in one truth. He wouldn't have had all these clear statements like, you have to love everything that has happened until now. That is a very firm statement. That's not relativistic in itself. Because according to Nietzsche, if you don't do that, you allow yourself to become a victim. You allow others to become victims. And as soon as you've got a culture of victimhood in society, you've got the end of civilization which is the problem with today's value relativism. So White did read Hegel first before he started studying pragmatism. And, and in a way, if you read Nietzsche through Hegel, you get a totally different perspective on it. So there is a dialectical term that saves the whole project of pragmatism. And that dialectical term is the understanding of contingency and change as being real. But I don't understand how change can... Well, I can. I understand that change can be the only constant in the universe, because yes. Einstein said so, yeah. uh, and Buddha did as well, I think. Yeah. Uh, but but um, how can it be an absolute? How can you say... How, you can't base a system of law, for instance, on change as the absolute. No, no. Because then is, law would have to no, be no. submitted to change all well, the time. Well, this is metaphysics, so... Uh, this, this is only conditional for metaphysics in itself. So to understand physics and eventually to understand law, to understand politics, that's, that's the next step. Then you look at the next step. Then it becomes a, an issue for the pragmatist of, okay, you've got a human tribe in front of you. You've got a variety of personalities here. Why is that? Because the tribe as a whole becomes stronger if you have a variety of archetypes. So mm -hmm. you have a number of archetypes that have different roles. They need to listen to each other they need to respect each other and admire each other for the different capacities they have. And ultimately, you need also the wisdom here. So you need a matriarch and you need a patriarch that control the inner and the outer circles and are highly respected. Because at the end of the day, those who've lived the longest and have access to the most information are obviously wiser than anybody else. So you can make wise decisions on how you move forward. That's actually a construct for society that actually works. And you write at that through pragmatism. Because it all goes back to everyday reality. And everyday reality is at its clearest in the outer circle when you're out in the hunting team. Because if anybody lies in this group, the whole group is going to go down. That means the truth finding, like in fact finding, becomes really important. What pragmatism then says that is that facts are, yes, indeed, incredibly important. But the way to arrive at the fact is by going there with different perspectives. This is why another word for Nietzsche's philosophy is perspectivism. But it doesn't mean that different perspectives have, have the same value. 
This is the fundamental misunderstanding of the concept of value relativism. Nietzsche never says the different perspectives have the same value. He never said that. That's why he's not a postmodernist. He says, of course, the different perspectives have different values. Some are more true than others. But by voicing those opinions and then trying them out, you can discover which one is closest to the truth. And remember that Nietzsche is a truth worshiper. He says the truth will set us free. Truth is the only way forward. By accepting everything that has happened also means you have an obligation to study history. What did happen? Not making it up. It's not the acceptance of any kind of fairy tale that anybody said all of a sudden around the fire, but it's exactly finding out exactly what happened, learn from history, and then accepting it. This is fundamentally where we are at now, including yourself. Never regret what you did. Just learn from what you did. Don't repeat your mistakes, but completely accept the person who made that mistake. I'll try. I, I, I can't promise I love him, but accept, sure. I, you, you, I'll try for acceptance. It has many beauties. One of them is that it kills Christian morality. It actually kills morality in itself. What you discover after you started the practice is that morality in itself is only good and evil. It's a very childish little game, and it's based on a really weird thing called the morality. The morality is the, the, the god or the judge who set the rules which you have to follow to be a good boy or a bad boy, okay? The funny thing is the morator, of course, has no rules at all that he has to follow. He can make up just about anything. So let's talk about good and evil, because I've read Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche as well, and I too believe that in nature those concepts doesn't really exist, exist, but I do believe that they exist for us humans. We have evil and good in us. I don't think we do, not when we're really clever. Good and evil exist in the child's fantasy. It's a shortcut when you don't know how the world operates. So what you do if you're a woman, you're a smart woman, say you're an older woman, and you're raising a child, is that you don't have time to educate this child, to understand the full complexity of life, and learn what's really valuable when you're a grown-up, which is ethics. And ethics only deals with constructive or destructive intentions, constructive or destructive outcomes, which is what pragmatism is. It's pure ethics without moralism. I believe in that myself. I call it interactive ethics or the ethics of interactivity. But you cannot teach that to a child. You, you cannot teach to a child that if you touch your hand on a hot stove, then, you know, the outcome is going to be this and this. You just have to teach a child that don't touch that hot stove. You're a nasty little boy if you do. And you don't You're a good boy if you don't. And you don't explain why. Because this, no, is, how I, this is how I viewed uh, pragmatism, because I read Rorty. Uh, and that is that he is overly concerned with outcomes, and he doesn't really care about the why. Why did we get this outcome? It's just, does it work or not work? And I can see that when I read Gunnar Myrdal and Alva Myrdal as well, mm -hmm. that he's all only interested in efficiency and not in moral principles or ethics exactly. either, really. Because it's clear well, to me... Well, the mid-arts are kind of early value relativists, I agree on that. And the same thing goes definitely with Richard Rorty. Rorty's weakness is then, what kind of outcome? Directed by what? Valued according to what? Okay, that is what the phallic vision is all about. The phallic vision is all about dictating exactly what is desired outcome. That is an ethical value. And it has to do with the good of the tribe as a whole. No. That means that if you selfishly, 19 years or so, woke up to the elderly and said that, well, I've read Ayn Rand and I'm a really good egotist and you have to let me free to do this, then of course what the elderly do is that, well, we raised you, we invested in you for 19 years and you're going to have your little freedom and you're going to have your freedom of expression if you like that. But you damn are going to follow the tribe because you have to serve the tribe. That's what it means to be human. Otherwise, you're probably a polar bear or you're some other kind of solitary animal that can actually live on your own. Because a human being on his own or her own is completely disastrous. It doesn't work. You will end up in an intense sense of loneliness. It will not work. You are ultimately a tribal creature. So, Roji doesn't reply to that. He, he never says, what is then dictating the value of the desired outcome? My response to that because my process philosophy is that life changes all the time. And because it changes all the time and you don't know all the conditions that are involved in your decision making, that means you cannot be judged for your outcome. You must be judged on your intention. But that intention has to be built on you searching for the truth to speculate as well as you possibly can on the outcome. 
So you have to be educated or get access to wisdom and education. You go to the elderly, you go to the experience, you become an expert on what you do. You're appointed by the tribe to be an expert on what you do. You really personify the archetype you should be. That to me is the ultimate form of, of, of you know, gratification, of, of, of in identification on Jung's individuation. You become your true you when you become the archetype within the tribe who's being highly respected for what you do and you do it together with the other members of your archetype. So you find your archetype, you serve in that role and you have a very, very fulfilled life. So your obligation and ethically is to try to understand and discover what are the consequences of your action. What is the most likely outcome? And this is why the elderly ultimately decide what we do. The overall plan, the phallic vision, where the tribe is heading to survive, where are we moving to maximize provision and to maximize protection so that our young women can give birth to children as safely as possible. That is ultimately what the tribe is about. This is the dictate from the matriarch. Make sure that my girls give birth, maximizing their chances of surviving childbirth, maximizing the chance of our children to survive. And you guys out in the circuit, you spy, you go out there, you find the way, and you find the spot where we give birth to these children. Then I will give you the sexual ritual in return as a reward. Okay, so this is the overall ethical imperative for the tribe. And once you look at that, Rocher never writes about it. He never discusses this at all. He's, he hasn't really studied anthropology. He hasn't really studied social psychology. He doesn't understand what it means to be human. He's just speculating after the pragmatist, not realizing that the real pragmatists like Saunders Peirce and, and William James and John Dewey were very much interested in society as a whole. Yes, they were, and they were yeah. also interested in morality. Well, I would say ethics, okay. because morality dies with pragmatism. This is exactly why the Christian churches hated pragmatism in the 19th century. And that's why they hated Nietzsche. And that's why Nietzsche declared the death of God, because morality goes with that. And our childish attachment to the fairy tales of good and evil go with it. Even George W. Bush went to war with good and evil. So you don't believe that there is any evil? No. Nor good? No, I believe that usually we call But evil. let's say hypothetically that you are a person who has acquired knowledge, yeah. exper expertise and yeah. experience. You're, yeah. you're embodying the archetype yeah. and you're put in a situation where you're faced with a problem. Yeah. And you know that there are two solutions to this problem. One is right and one is wrong in relation to your archetype. One is wrong. And you still no, choose the wrong. No. Because it benefits you. Then isn't that evil? No, no, no. Wait a second. Wait a second. You choose between constructive and destructive. You don't choose between right or wrong. Okay, but let's say... Because it has, but, it has an intention. It has the an example, intention. The example still stands. So if you're put in a position, you're in, in embodying the archetype, you're, uh, you have two choices. The one is destructive and one is constructive. For the tribe. For the tribe. As a whole. Yes, as a whole. But you, as the archetype, you choose the destructive part because, because it benefits you personally. No. Wait a or it hurts someone that no. you dislike personally. No, no, wait Isn't that evil? No, though? wait a second. No, wait a second. Something dysfunctional has happened before that happens. You, you, you're not your archetype. You're not proud of being your archetype. You don't believe in your own power. You don't believe in empowerment. Maybe you're Somebody, just selfish. No. Well, that is victimhood, the ultimate form of victimhood. Somebody's allowed you or fostered you to victimize yourself before you make that kind of decision. You have to go back and find it. Yes, but something is dysfunctional in the tribe as a whole when that happens. But does that matter? Yes, it matters. Because they were on the wrong path. No, but that's just an explanation. It's no, not no, an no, excuse. No no. no, no, wait a second. It's precisely when the phallic vision is lacking. It's precisely when the elderly are gone. It's precisely when you don't have something to go up against and value this accordingly. So you can be proud of yourself for doing what you do. It's precisely when that does not exist. Then you start making the wrong mistakes. And then you no longer serve the tribe, but you only start serving yourself and you close-knit people around you. And then you get civil war within the tribe, it all falls apart. That's why tribes went under. And it, yes, and isn't that evil? It isn't evil, it's just destructive. You, you have to realize that what you're discussing here is misplaced energies, misplaced ambitions. You were not fostered to be what you were supposed to be. You were not given the direction that the older generation owe you. So you end up in the wrong place. We end up in the wrong place. Oh, trust me. I was definitely raised uh, with uh, the caveat that uh, 
my parents that I owe my parents and tribe. But well, well, but, your, but, I, but I you might, and your parents did not live outside of a society. You live within a society yes. with certain values as well. And when those values collide with whatever family values you have, you get very confused too. You have to remember that the fall of a civilization is called chaos and confusion. The chaos is what happens. The confusion is what happens in our heads at the same time. We are born with certain categories. We're born to find certain places, all place and recognition, where suddenly we're in the right place. It's when you can't find the right place for you that you isolate yourself and become narcissistic and self-obsessed as a compensation for the self-love and the self-recognition you cannot get from your surroundings. And if you don't get recognized from your surroundings in the role you have, so your role, you, you don't know what your role is, you become erratic. You're confused. That's exactly what our society today should be categorized as a society of chaos and confusion. I, I, when I say I don't believe in good and evil, I don't believe in good, but I don't believe in evil either. No, I, I, I understand that. We have to get that. rid of the idea that people don't become evil or become good at all. So no, then we I have to go back I, and I don't personally even think that. I think that good and evil are simply uh, constructs within human society, but yep. they exist for us humans. They exist for us to tell stories to children. Well, also to ourselves, to make our societies work. No. For a grown-up, I think the idea of good and evil is incredibly destructive. We, as a grown-up, you leave good and evil and storytelling at the rite of passage. And then you walk into the world of adulthood where reality is at the center. The fallus tempted you to one day become an adult. And once you become an adult, you realize, oh, I'm finally invited to and recognized as a person who's in touch with reality. Reality is what directs me from now on, not the fairy tale. I'm interested in truth. I'm no longer interested in fiction. That is the shift into adulthood. And there's no longer any room for good and evil because good and evil were only shortcuts to the constructive or destructive mentality. So take a bunch of young men that I've got at the men's work workshop today. The first thing I teach them when they walk into the room is that contemporary society has wrongly taught you to compete with each other. Competition is only something you do with your testosterone when you're cornered. Personally, okay. I, 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 I disagree with this as well. Oh, I, wait, so wait, I love let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Com so competitions are what happens between you and other men. And then I say your testosterone fosters you actually to contribute and collaborate. So we're going to train you towards contributing. I mean, find your archetype, your role, when you can be admired by the other men for your capacity to, to contribute to this specific role. The other men are the men you should admire for qualities they have that you don't have. So instead of feeling envy towards them, which is a shortcut, that's good and evil again, that's childish. Instead of feeling envy towards them, you can admire them. And when two men start admiring each other for the different capacities, the different talents, they're perfect to build the team. Then you can build a hunting team based on that. Yes, but that's what you, you have to do. Then you go into contribution and, and, and collaboration mode. And competition is then only between tribes or between the teams. Yeah, but you still have competition. Between you, you the teams get, and between the tribes. Yes, but you don't get away from competition, and it's not unhealthy with wait, competition. No, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Let's go to a soccer game together. No, let's wait not. Wait a second. <laughs> okay, 11 guys, one team, 11 guys, the other team. Yes. Do you seriously think that a soccer game is a competition between two teams and who's the winner? Well, yes, but I'm no. not that interested in no, soccer. No, it's a I ritual. It's a ritual. It's a celebration of 22 talented football players. If yes. you don't see that, you haven't but really no, understood no, no, it. No, 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 no. I, I see it. Yeah. I see it's sublimation of war. That's how I see it. Can be used as many things, yes. Yes, but, but that's, how, that's why I don't fight against it that much. Even though I've never really been a big soccer person and it's national religion here and we live in Europe where everyone loves football. Uh, but I, I, I do realize that it's important for society because you harness a lot of destructive and aggressive energy into these matches where you have the representation of war between cities, between countries. It's way more than that. We had the soccer games inside the tribe too. 
And yeah, yes, wars. because there's competition within the tribe as well. But I believe in competition yeah, within the tribe as the well. The military is not competition. The military is an expansion of territory, defense of territory. No, but I'm not talking about the military necessarily. No. I'm talking about competition between men. Because if you are to find out how you compliment me and I compliment you, we need to compete with each other in order to find out no, what are your strengths. No, we compare each other. We don't compete. We compare each yeah, other. Yeah, but we can do that in playful competition. Yeah, but then it's no longer the competition that is at the center than the comparison. Comparison is the thing. Yes, the, the, it, the goal is the comparison. But to find out what that is, we need the competition. Okay. If you immerse yourself in a sports culture, you very soon discover that what you really truly enjoy is the ceremonial aspect of the whole thing. You get an identity by being a fan of one of the two teams. That's what you're looking for if you're a man and go to a soccer game. And that's why women might play soccer, but they certainly never watch soccer. Okay. Because it's very much in the outer circuit. So I teach men at men's work workshops to understand the dynamics of this. And that's exactly, you do not have an open conflict between two teams without rules. No, that's no. true. Why then? Because the rules are more important than the actual conduction of the game. You also have a referee with a family case who values what happens and whether you stay within the rules. So you're essentially training yourself for hunting. You're training yourself for the things that the outer circuit do. But what you do as a fan is that you honor both teams. They both sing each other's anthems at the beginning. And the most important thing at the end of the game is in one team, one over the other, is that the game, the team who lost respect the other team by showing the respect because you were even stronger warriors today than we were. Because it's all about the 22 warriors on the field that are United team once they go outside of that soccer stadium. So this is what all martial arts are concerned with too. Our best two warriors are fighting and out comparing each other in, in the center of the thing. So it's, it's not just sublimation of war. But what this is that it, it is comparison to really find archetypes. And once you find your archetype, you're very happy. I've never seen a man or a woman for that matter who found their true personal archetype but weren't proud of it. It's when, it's when you have a profession and you go to work. And you've known all your life. You wanted to be this one thing. This is what, who you are. And you educated yourself. You passed all the exams. You got the title and you're doing it. These people are happy. They're perfectly happy. They're in flow. Oh, this is who I am. And then they really become individuals or individuals for that matter. They really become who they should be. Grabbing something from others in the competition over limited resources, nothing but survival. There's nothing grandiose about that at all. Oh, I don't. I don't know if I call it grandiose. I just call it life. Uh, personally, there's a lot of that going on, but that's not what you get your true identity. But but you you're, you're, proud mod of. you're modeling your next book on Taoism, right? So you, you have the you, you compare it between inner circle and outer circle. There's a lot of Taoism in our work now. Yes. Yes, but but you you know the the yin yang yin yang sum. Yes. You have the dark and you have the light, and they're in a sort of a locked fight between each other. Yeah, but you can't describe dark and light in the Chinese perspective from a Western perspective, which is like the devil and God or something like that. Th that doesn't exist in Chinese mythology at all. The dark and the light is no more, more different than inner or outer, or feminine or masculine. Or, 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 or actually what it is is that the inner circuit, the yin, is dictated by um, just the, the circular. It's a circular mythology. It's like everything's repeated. It's what Nietzsche calls the return of the same. So it's the yes. same thing coming back forth and forth. This is exactly why women remember the calendar and the birthdays much better than a man does. That's how women love Easter and they love Christmas and they love midsummer and they love weekends and they know exactly how to do it. Remember exactly how you put things last year and put them the same way again. They're experts at it because that's what you do in the inner circuit, right? These traditions are important because you follow them with every season because once the women and the inner circuit is on the move, it's probably moving from one spot to the next depending on the season and then back again. Whereas the outer circuit moves over much bigger territory and therefore also needs more protection. So it includes soldiers in the outer circuit. This is where most of the men are located and they have to move a lot more. So they don't really care about that. And of course then, what is their storytelling? What is the storytelling you get with the hunting team? It is all about, we're going to get there. We have a specific vision and we pretend that the goal is important. We pretend that the promised land is important because it's the way there that is important because otherwise we will not succeed. So what you have in Taoism is you have a unique religion that says that it both includes yang, which is the linear, it's the direction towards the vision. And it also includes the uh, upkeep yeah, uh, the of, of the circular. Yeah, and that's what you got within the yin.
And you don't need reincarnation and shit like that because of that. Because if the end takes over completely, then you get a story telling you you're forcing both men and women to live within the circular. And then you get reincarnation, you get Hinduism, which is essentially a very feminine religion, a very matrical religion. It's all about worship and staying in the womb. But the response to that is called Shiva and Lingam worship, but it's still within the womb, right? So in Taoism, you, you thankfully get both an ideology for the outer circuit and an ideology for the inner circuit within the same system. That's very interesting. Yeah, and the light and the dark here, why the dark is associated with the feminine, is essentially warning, saying that if the feminine takes over and becomes the ideology of the entire tribe, because it is the first ideology, the first ideology is always the ideology of the matrix and the mamilla. Yes. The connection with your mother's body is the first thing you see in life. Your, your whole willingness to live your libido. The goddess. And, and your Venus desire to die more It's all about connection with it. Like the cover of our book, Digital Libido, is a female body yeah. and a womb. And the womb is a mausoleum. That's the dark of Taoism. The womb represents our willingness, our deep willingness, subconscious desire to return to the womb, which means we want to die. And we cannot return to the womb. Nature prevents us from returning to the womb. We cannot get back in. So we crawl to the mamilla as the second best thing, to be united with the female body in first fantasy. The first fantasy in life is that by sucking the tit, we're united with the, with the female body again, and we don't have to exist on our own. We're scared and terrified of existing. But libido has already started working in us. The willingness to, die, the willingness to live has started working in us. What Nietzsche calls will to power. We just called it a Freudian libido. And the libido then is, takes over after the phallic intrusion of one year of age. And after that, you really want to live. You want to live a full life. You want to complete your life. Your life is not working towards perfection at all. That was Plato's stupid idea. No, no, your life is working towards completion. Like Jung said, what you desire when you got libido is to live your life fully, complete it, and then be able to die. And then you return to the world. That, 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 is, that is the libidinal life. That is Nietzsche's life. This is the life that one day wants to die, but wants to live life to its fullest. Immersed with libido. Nietzsche calls it will to power. And this is the celebration the pragmatists do. They celebrate life as it is, not the fairy tale. Meaning that once you are over one year old, you have to move out of the dark, which then becomes the dark, which is the matrical fantasy of the return to the womb. And you have to go into the light, which is the young, which is the phallic world to wanting to become a grown-up, to then wanting to become an elderly, to one day complete your life, live life to the fullest, as Heidegger says. And then you live the complete, full life, and then you're ready to die. Yeah, I think I might be a Taoist. Uh, no, but you see, here, yeah. you see the role. No, I see. I see misplaced the, storytelling, misplaced strategies, incredibly destructive to me. But, I, but what I'm I saying could, is, that within the system of Taoism and the linear and the circular, I see no problem with there being competition within this system. No, but you, you, I think competition is just the wrong word. It passes in the wrong direction. Yes, there is competition, but it's in a very controlled environment. Yes, until you go out to war or hunt. Well, then it has to be more controlled. If you go to war without a strategy, you'll definitely lose. This That's is, where the priests come in. Uh, but it, I, I'm not saying that just because there's competition, there doesn't have to be a strategy. Of course well, the there's thing a strategy. Is this, if you've got a soldier in your army who doesn't follow the rules you already decided before you went to war, you're going to kill him because it's going to be incredibly dangerous for all of us. Yes, and the only yeah. reason he knows those rules is because of playful competition within the group, which means yes. he found his place within yes. the team. And then they go out and they yes. meet another team who's also had playful competition because now, sooner or later, they're in real competition okay. and people are going to die. Okay, I'll tell you one thing. There is a reason why the matriarch doesn't like war and she only wants war when it's really needed. Because war is a form of protection of the tribe. A war does not provide. No. So what happens when the guys go to war and stay at war at the outer circuit is that they focus all the resources on the war and the hunting teams become soldier teams. The problem with that is that no provision is happening in the circuit, meaning that the young women who are supposed to give birth to children starve to death. So that is really the end of the tribe. Yes. And that is exactly why women are worried and paranoid constantly. And they're especially worried and paranoid about men going into fights that are not asked for. So you have to train. This is what the elderly do. You have to train the young man. that Your desire to compete and show your big muscles or whatever has to be controlled. That's exactly why we have sports. So we have sports before we have war. You have martial arts, for example, where you train yourself. And you can, you can hit your, your, your competitor, you can hit your opponent as much as you like. But if you ever hit the referee, you're dead. Yes. You'll never go into that ring ever again. Because then you're going up against the phallic gaze, you're going up against the elderly. You are never, ever allowed to attack the elderly. 
That's exactly why you keep yourself in place. And that's why you feel you're being tamed and domesticated. This is what Freud calls the castration that must happen to the young man, because otherwise it's just pure anarchy among the men. So I take all these guys who are 25 years old in Sweden today who are really confused and never had any fathers there, and I say, it's not even absent father syndrome you suffer from. It's even worse. You suffer from absent phallus syndrome. That's what Sadekvist and I call it in our work. Absent phallus syndrome. They're very, very confused about their identity. It the is- first thing I do is that I throw them into martial arts. So they've got a capacity for learning martial arts, martial arts. Because then you learn how to relate to other men the way your father would have taught you in case he'd been there. And you can learn it quickly. I mean, in a couple of years, you'll be a much more healthy man. And you will get respect for what you do. And if you happen to be the weak guy, then, well, the biggest power is not to be the strong guy in the ring. It's to be the fucking referee. Well, then teachers, you know, learn to be a coach. And then learn to become a referee. You yeah. have the respect you desire. You better be good at it, though. Because the referee has to be really, really good at what it does. Otherwise, he's out of the ring. Yeah, he must know more about martial arts, really, than the martial artists. Exactly. He must love it more than they do. He must respect his fighters. He must really admire them. He must know what's good for them. And he must speak the truth when they don't follow the rules. He must not let them control the ring ever, meaning he's a priestly elderly. Yeah. So we return to the elderly. And the problem with society today is the absent phallus syndrome, meaning that the elderly are lacking and the phallic vision, the phallic direction is lacking. That makes us very, very confused, especially young men. The problem also is that women don't realize in their confusion that they're also lacking the same direction. The matriarch is, is lacking. She's not there. And that is the other syndrome we have in contemporary society because we believe that young people are always right. Yeah, where so did we get doing, that idea from? Yeah, we both, well, teenagers <laughs> in America in the 1950s, it started there, right? Really? So, yes, it did. After the, after the Second World So Rebel World Without War. a Cause and James Dean is the source of all our problems. Well, the Rebel Without a Cause is a pretty useless guy, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes, he he's quite pathetic. He wears hip, cool clothes. Yeah, and, and he has gets a slayed. cool car. Yeah. He gets slayed, but he doesn't get married because only stupid girl will marry him because there's no future. There's no future. It's the romanticization of the rebel. It's essentially one of romanticizing a guy's dying, meaning it's a martyrial dream, not a liberal dream. It's a fantasy of our extinction. It's not a fantasy about civilization. Civilization celebrates those who build things. Basically, it's autoerotic asphyxiation. Then. It is, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. We're strangling ourselves while masturbating, right? And why now. did it happen in the 1950s? It happened in the 1950s because we lived in a society of abundance. And when there's abundance, the inner circuit and the women start thinking they're more important than they are. So you start to swell out of the inner circuit and start conquering everything else because it's suddenly abundance that because of overproduction. Yeah. Okay. And that collides with the death of the old utopian ideologies that all died at about the same time. Meaning you have free love, you have hippies, you have everybody can love everybody, there are no rules anymore, everything will be free and wonderful, and that of course ends with disaster because it's called anarchy. Yeah. And it's the enemy of civilization. It's incredibly dangerous, of course it's just bullshit. There is no such thing as free love. It's interesting, I want to bring it back just a second, what you said about uh, the perspectives of perspectives of time in Taoism. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I was writing about Judaism not too long ago, and I, I realized that Judaism, well, is u- usually attributed with bringing in the linear perspective of time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but It's a very phallic religion to begin with. Yes, it is. But, yeah. but what you see is because uh, the story of Abraham and Terach, do you know this? Terach yeah. was his father, yeah? And, yeah. He, and he rebelled against his father. Mm-hmm. And what he does basically, because what he does, uh, when, te- when he lives with Terach in Ur, in the Chaldees, as... A ritual place that became a city. Yes. In pre- Mesopotamia. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Uh, there they have a, a, a polytheistic cult. They believe in the wheel of destiny. So their lives go round and round and round. And they're chained to this wheel. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're bound to it. The so ultimate what, metrical fantasy. Yes. Yeah. So what Abraham does is he, he grabs onto his chains that are fastened to the wheel and he pulls on them until the wheel sort of breaks and it goes into a straight line and continues all the way to Einstein. Yes. Uh, And I've been thinking about this quite a lot because I was taught this linear perspective of time, but then, you know, I go back to Pesach because now it's time for the Easter and I go back to my mother's house and my father's house and we celebrate Pesach and I realize in all the Jewish holidays, the perspective of time is still round. We bake around chalot, we say the year is round and still, Mm -hmm. so there's a, in Judaism, too, this duality between the two perspectives of time. And I guess. I think there are two time dimensions. I even physically think that's correct. Yes. And there's a lot of physics that go along with that line. If you can have several dimensions of space, why wouldn't we have several dimensions of time? Because the, the further we look at time, 
we have to make a differentiation between time and hypertime. There is a time within which time exists. We cannot think outside of time, but then allow ourselves to have a hypertime within which we can place time the way Einstein did, for example. So when Einstein studied, he studied relativistic time. It's also called local time in physics. There is also the potential for a global time. This is the time at the outskirts of the universe, at the surface of the universe, meaning that the universe as a whole operates according to one time. So that would be a different time than the relativistic time. So two time dimensions. What this allows for, if you take this perspective, and I studied a lot with the physicists and mathematicians and discovered that this would actually make sense. You can have at least two dimensions. In, in superstring theory, if it survives at all, these days you have 12 rather than 11 dimensions because you now include two time dimensions and 10 dimensions of space. Because once you start with time, and you even allow for two time dimensions, you can build all the other space, spatial dimensions on top of that. So I would radically say, for example, that there could be time before the Big Bang. It's just that our universe physically and within space does not exist before the Big Bang. Big Bang is the beginning of the expansion of space from which a singularity is, to, to what it is today, which turns out to be absolutely correct when you study physics. So you can allow for hypertime to exist at the surface of the universe, and then it's different from time inside. We call that global time in physics. By having these two time dimensions, it becomes quite interesting because then why not have two parallel forms of storytelling in the tribe? And that's exactly what we do. There's one story during childhood up until the phallic intrusion, which is sort of fairy tale-ish, but it's actually true for what you need at the time. And then there's another form of storytelling that starts from the phallic intrusion up until death, but only up until death, not beyond it, but up until death during life. This is the libidinal time. So this is the time that is your duration during life. And this is our true stories. So this, this, this is our stories of truth that, that tries to create meaning out of facts. That are completely related to factual reality around ourselves. If you want to use a different word than truth, then you call it factuality. What is, what is the actual character of the world we live in? What is actual characters of me? You know, and it's, it disqualifies superstition and disqualifies fantasy. The first religion that really got into this was Zoroaster, Zoroasterism. The other religion besides Taoism that I'm a huge fan of. And, and the origin of the phallic in Judaism is actually from Zoroasterism. And Zoroasterism has this idea of linear and the phallic towards the vision. And the name of the force that takes us to that vision is the Saoshion which is the origin of the Messiah in Jewish religion. And of course, then the Messiah and the Soshan are the ultimate phalluses. This is what the phallus, this is what we really dream of when we see the phallus. This is that the phallus is the symbol of that which is going to lead us to the ultimate completion of ourselves. And the, prom our the promised land, basically. The promised land, the safety of the tribe or the completion of our own lives. So the direction in our lives is towards that state. And the idea of the Messiah as a savior or the Saushiant as a savior in Iran is essentially somebody steps in somewhere when we really are in a state of chaos and confusion and leads us out of the chaos and confusion back to the world of truth and reality, where we need to be. Then, this is the funny thing, the female body wins at the end, women win at the end, because when you die, you get enlightened. And enlightenment is essentially letting go of everything. And this is the return to the mortido. So your first wish in life, we're outside the matrix. Oh, I want to go back in and die, will be realized. And it's called the deathbed. So we do return to the mortido. What, what Freud meant with the death drive is that, yes, we're driven towards death by our subconsciousness, but we're driven towards death. We shouldn't actually realize it while we're there, which is exactly why you cannot access your subconsciousness. You cannot access the fact that you want to die. So you do believe you want to live. And that's exactly how it should work. So Rasta even made that the principle of his religion. He said that, well, it doesn't matter if we ever get enlightened and want to go into a mode of extinction and die. So essentially, the response from a Zoroastrian to Buddhist is that, yeah, you can be so self-obsessed with becoming enlightened, you will be enlightened anyway, it's called death. So you can worry your life with, you know, the worries of regular life, regular tribal life. So the, the Zoroastrians don't allow anybody to be superior and walk out of the tribe and sit, you know, on a pillar somewhere in the forest and feel superior to everybody else. They don't allow that. They don't have that parallel system at all. They said, no, 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 we all live within the tribe. We should be libidinal. We should follow our desires and our drives, live our lives to the fullest, and hopefully be lucky enough to live a complete life. Because enlightenment will arrive anyway. It will arrive when we die. Then you have a dialectics between libido and martido. Of course, you return to Hegel. 
At the end of the day, your life is just passages where you go from one extreme to the other. So essentially, Hegelian philosophy says that if we have both the circular and we have the linear within the tribe, it's probably because they have two different purposes. We just must not misplace them. We must not take the circle and put it where the linear is supposed to be, which is regarding our future. And we must not take the linear and put it where the circle is supposed to be, which is in our everyday survival. Taking the kids to school, putting food on the table, that is all within the circular. This is all something that's inner circuit. That's where the food is served. So they're complementary systems. They're complementary. That's why we have two genders. They are complementary They're complementary. I have no problem at, at all with women or with men. What I have problems with is, is children inside women's bodies and children inside men's bodies. And today, unfortunately, society is full of them. And I want to encourage people to start studying these things, educate themselves, and finally try to understand what it means to be human. And I hope you succeed. And also, I'd like to come by one of your man camps and yell at them for a while. <laughs> but... <clears throat> that is, after all, one of my few talents, yelling at people. Uh, but you have done a great job today informing me about a lot of things, and I'll have to listen to this tonight, because tomorrow we go again. Absolutely. Yeah. I love being here. And I'm going to start saying it now like, Jew and Aryan, because that's uh, the dichotomy between us. But I hope you have enjoyed listening, and uh, we'll speak to you again in the next episode. Thank you for listening to The Aryan Jew Show. Support this show on Patreon, PayPal, and or Swish. Alexander Bard can be followed on Twitter under his nom de guerre, at Bardissimo, or Facebook. Apart from an earlier life as a pop star and TV personality, he is the author of several books and a philosopher in his own right, focusing on the melding of man and technology. Together with Jan Söderqvist, he has written several books, ranging from The Netocrats in 2000 to Syntheism in 2014, where they found a new religion for the age of information technology. I can also be followed on Twitter, Instagram, and in 10 days or so, Facebook, from which I'm currently blocked, but mostly on www.aaronflam.com and in the podcast Deconstructive Critique. The links to Alexander's social media, books, and this podcast can also be found on www.aaronflam.com until Arian Jew Show gets its own webpage. Until next time, have a good unit of time and may randomness strike an advantageous outcome for you. Thank you and until next time.